We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that will enable us to shout to God in praise and in worship, even when times are tough. It's uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, and I'll be reading from page 25. And I saw that the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living beings saying, like a voice of thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering, that is, in order to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the seven second living being saying, come. And another horse went out, fiery red, and it was granted to him who sat on it to take the peace from the earth so that they would slaughter each other. Also a huge sword was given to him. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living being saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living beings saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the olive oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice from the fourth living being saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a sickly, pale horse. And as for the one sitting upon it, his name is Death, and Hades follows with him. And authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword and by famine and by death, even by the wild animals of the earth. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is our desire to understand it, uh, to adjust our lives in light of it. And I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, we saw that all of the horsemen in this chapter are pretty controversial figures. Well, actually, it's the interpretations that are controversial. Everybody's got a different idea of what each of these uh, symbols represents. And what we tried to do is uh, systematically, using clues that are in the text and in the rest of Scripture, narrow down the options to first century candidates just using the clues from the text. And I tried to show how the fourth four horsemen were the demonic emperors, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. And uh, just to anticipate uh, the next few weeks, uh, let me show you uh, some of my favorite coins that were put out under each of those uh, emperors. And I'll hasten to say that we do not Uh, interpret based on the authority of external evidence. We do so based on the authority of the scripture. But as I was doing research on archaeology and looking at hundreds and hundreds of coins over the past uh, week, I was fascinated to see how perfectly they dovetail together with the interpretation that I, I came up with from the biblical evidence alone. And I think if you lived in the first century and you had these coins in your hand, you would say, oh, I know exactly what John's uh, talking about uh, when he lists these figures. Uh, My interpretation is that the first horseman was the demonic emperor Tiberius, and the text says that he rides on a white horse, 
He has a Stephanus crown, has a bow, and goes out conquering. And there are quite a few coins that show the white horse that he inherited from his father, uh, Augustus. But uh, this one that I've got here, that's the first one in your outlines, <coughs> is um, a coin that shows some other aspects of Tiberius. He wears the Stephanus crown, which was laurel leaves that were worn on the head, and uh, all of the coins of Tiberius. This, uh, this is something that really distinguished uh, this uh, emperor, one of his defining characteristics. On the reverse side are the words Maxim Pontiff, or chief priest. He had a savior complex, a messianic uh, complex. His mother appears as the goddess Livia, or the goddess of peace, and peace was also symbolized by white. There is a scepter, there is a bow uh, there on that other side. Other coins show him riding a horse and conquering. Uh, he was Rome's greatest general and the main reason for Augustus's success. And contrary to the way a lot of the classical literature portrays him, uh, he was a pedophile, he was a rapist, he was a really bad guy, okay? So don't think of him as a hero. A lot of people thought of him as a hero. And for many centuries, they idolized the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, which was you know, a peace that was imposed under the iron boot of Rome. It was not something to idolize. Okay, the next uh, rider is the even more demonic Caligula, and I've got several coins from his short reign of terror. I, I didn't put it into your outlines, but the one I've, I'm holding up here, can't see it real clearly, but it uh, uh, ties him in with the military sword. The next one, which is in your outline... Uh, identifies him with the god horse Pegasus, or the flying uh, horse. Now, among the ancient Greeks, um, usually Pegasus was uh, a white horse or a black horse, but if you look at a lot of the archaeological pictures on the vases, on the frescoes, on paintings, on walls, and different things like that, from this period of time, you will see uh, that the Romans uh, portrayed him as a red flying uh, horse, and um, uh, of course Caligula is said in the text to ride on a wet, uh, red horse. Is that a coincidence? It's possibly a coincidence, but I don't think so. I think Caligula himself saw him as a god, saw himself as a god riding uh, on a flying horse. Uh, the next rider is the demonic Claudius. Now verse 4 says that he rides a black horse and holds a pair of scales or balances in his hand. And the coin that you've got in your outline that I'm holding up here is one that every citizen would have had in their hand at some point in their life, probably rather frequently. He actually issued quite a number of these uh, these co uh, coins, various versions, but they all show Claudius's hand holding a pair of scales or holding a balance. The only emperor that I know of that has that as a picture uh, of him. And uh, he took the throne after Caligula. Okay, the next rider was the demonic Nero, and I've printed off a picture of a Nero coin that would have been... Um, uh, this one here may very well have been in view in light of the text that's here. It was Nero on the front, and it's got the god... Hades carrying Persephone, the goddess of death. 
Okay, so if the demon death inhabited Nero at the beginning of his reign, there's another demon involved in his life called Hades, and those are the two gods on the back of that coin. Just look at any coin dealer that has pictures of this coin, and they will identify that those two gods on the other side as Hades and death, okay? And what does verse 8 say? Well, it says, And I looked, and behold, a sickly pale horse, and as for the one sitting upon it, his name is Death, and Hades follows with him. I think the coin is a perfect uh, illustration. And all of these coins are too close to the descriptions in this chapter to be accidental. Okay, I think they were deliberate clues as to who John was talking about so that the original readers would have immediately say, thought, okay, I know exactly uh, what's uh, going on in terms of John's uh, symbology. But there is one more. You know, here's another picture of, uh, of Tiberius with the, the laurel crown up there. There's just hundreds of, of them out there. But there is one interpretation of the first horseman that I have not dealt with yet. Uh, I mentioned it last week, but I did not take the time to rule it out. Bonson says that this first rider is Jesus Christ in his post-30 A.D. advancement of the gospel of the kingdom. And he's not the only one to say this. There's a lot of interpreters that I greatly respect uh, who uh, claim that this is the case, and on many levels, this is a credible interpretation. Rush Dooney, Greg Bonson, Douglas Kelly, and other notable scholars say that this figure clearly portrays the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if they think it clearly portrays him, I think we'd do an injustice to just brush over this. We need to consider their interpretation uh, seriously. Uh, David Chilton says, but there are several points about this writer that demonstrate conclusively that he can be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives the same four reasons that the others do. Here are the four reasons. First, the only other place that the white horse appears in the book of Revelation is in chapter 19. And there, the rider of that white horse is very clearly identified as the Lord Jesus Christ. And they ask, shouldn't we allow the book of Revelation to determine the interpretation of the symbols of this book? I think it's a pretty good argument. Uh, in chapter 19, the rider of the white horse is clearly Jesus, so we should assume that the rider of the white horse in this chapter is, is also uh, Jesus. Um, the second reason often given is that the horse rider in cha uh, chapter 19 is said to have many crowns, and here he is said to have a crown. So there is a similarity there. Third, Jehovah is said to ride horses with a bow in his hand in Habakkuk 3.9. And Psalm 45 prophesies that the Messiah will shoot errors, uh, arrows. So they say that this interpretation is consistent with Old Testament prophecy. So they're making a fairly decent case for their interpretation of the first figure. Fourth, the same word for conquering is used of believers in chapters 2 and 3. In fact, it's used seven times of believers. Um, and even though the word is not used of Christ in this book, they say, hey, if we're to be overcomers, we're a part of his army, it's perfectly appropriate to call the general of the army of overcomers an overcomer as well. So there is a level of credibility to that interpretation. 
But let me give you several reasons why Beale and other notable scholars are just as convinced that this absolutely cannot be the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think their arguments are much, much stronger. And before I give their arguments, let me first of all show how Chilton's arguments, just on their own, really do not stand up uh, to scrutiny. Chilton points out that Jesus rides a white horse in chapter 19. True. We don't contest that at all. In fact, it factors into our interpretation very strongly. But as Mounts points out in his commentary, a comparison of chapters 6 and 19 shows that the two writers have little in common beyond the fact that they are both mounted on white horses. And he shows that there are significant differences between the two riders, including the fact in chapter 19 that rider has got a weapon of a sword coming out of his mouth, not a bow. Here it is a bow. And secondly, this uh, rider goes forth in judgment. That rider goes forth in vindication. And so it makes Chilton's argument not quite so strong. As to the comparison of crowns, this passage shows the rider with one Stephanus crown, or the crown of victory, of an athlete or victory of a general. And that's consistent with Christ, okay, because uh, he is a, a victor as well. But the crown in this chapter is different, quite different from the crown that appears on the rider of the white horse in chapter 19. In chapter 19, it's a diadema crown. It's a metal crown of royalty, okay? And furthermore, in chapter 19, he's got many crowns that are the diadema Roma, uh, crowns. Here he's got one crown, which is the crown of a, of a general. Now, by itself, those differences don't prove anything one way or, or the other. It just shows that chapter 19 is not making a deliberate attempt at copying the symbol of chapter 6. If he really wanted us to think of that symbol as being the same, he wouldn't have made so many differences. The only, only uh, similarity really is the, the white horse. Now, Chilton's third reason is that Jehovah has a bow in Habakkuk 3.9, and Messiah is prophesied to shoot arrows in Psalm 45. But we could just as easily say that Psalm 11, verse 2, Psalm 37, verse 14, and many other passages have the wicked shooting a bow. See, the point is not whether a bow is an appropriate symbol to use of Jesus. Of course it is. It is an appropriate symbol. But the more important question to ask is, what specific Old Testament passages form the background to Revelation chapter 6? That's, that's the question. And Beale points out that the Old Testament passages, especially Zechariah 6, strongly argue against Jesus being the writer here. Now, Chilton tries to strengthen his argument by pointing out that there is a rainbow above the throne in chapter 5, and it's obvious that Christ has taken that rainbow, and he's uh, shooting that rainbow. And I, I'm thinking, no, it's a different word. It's a different concept. It, it's really not the same uh, thing. So again, at most, it's a neutral argument. Um, it doesn't argue for it, doesn't argue against it. Um, it's neither a win nor a loss for Chilton. Chilton's fourth reason for saying this is Jesus Christ is that believers are seven times commanded to be overcomers. Same word is used of the writer here. So he argues it's a positive word used of gospel conquest. Well, it can be, but does it have to be? No, it doesn't have to be. 
In fact, such an interpretation ignores the context of this chapter, which is pure judgment. And it also misses the fact that the beast is said to overcome, same Greek word, to overcome the saints in Revelation 13, verse 7. Same Greek word used for Christians, used for unbelievers. Revelation 11, verse 7 also says, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, there is the same Greek word, and kill them. So just because saints are called overcomers doesn't mean that means Jesus is the identity of the overcomer in this verse. Context is king, and the context strongly, strongly uh, goes against uh, that interpretation. So I'm going to look at some of the contextual arguments here. Those who argue for Jesus being the rider say that it vividly shows Christ's rule and his victory over the nations. And Phil, you're spoiling the whole effect, you know, of Jesus conquering to the ends of the earth. This is such a beautiful symbol. And I agree, it's a beautiful uh, symbol, but that symbol is already demonstrated with earlier images that Jesus is sitting on his throne and that he's breaking open these seals. That shows his sovereignty. That shows his, his victory over all of life. In fact, those are far more powerful images than this image of the horse, uh, horseman because this horseman, whatever he is doing, he stops doing it as soon as the second horseman rides forth. And Now, they disagree with that. And the way they disagree with it is they uh, say, in fact, let me quote from one of the authors here, Vic Reasoner, uh, gets around that problem because they want to say that Jesus rides to the end of the earth, that he doesn't stop when the second horseman comes. So Vic Reasoner says, no, all four horsemen ride simultaneously. They're all riding at the same time. Okay, on, it, on the surface, that seems like a credible argument, but we saw last week that these seals are not simultaneous. They are sequential, just like the trumpets are sequential. So that completely destroys that argument. And it really mars the symbol of this first rider being Jesus riding forth in victory because then you've got that victory stopping with the second, third, and fourth uh, riders that are going forth. Uh, we already have Jesus on the throne, and he's sovereign over all four of uh, these riders. But my next argument against Jesus being the rider can be seen in the following question in your outline. How can Jesus both open the seals as the ruler on the throne and then emerge out of the seals? You see the problem there? Just imagine that I'm Jesus Christ and I've got a scroll in my hand here and I break off one of the seals of the scroll and boom, out of that seal rides a horse and it's riding off into the sunset. That means that the rider of that horse is different than me, right? If, if I'm holding the scroll, breaking the seal, and something comes out of the seal and rides off, that's going to be different than me. You can't have it both ways. Either Jesus is sovereign over the seals and opens them, or he's the one that emerges from the seals, but it can't be both ways. And furthermore, the Lamb continues to open seals two through seven. So you have Jesus riding off into the sunset, and Jesus is continuing to open seals over here. It's just too awkward to be credible. I, I don't buy that. But there's yet another argument against Jesus being the first horseman. Virtually every manuscript, whether it's in the majority text or the non-majority text, has come rather than the New King James versions come and see. 
You read the commentaries and you will see that they demonstrate that an angel is commanding each of these horsemen to come and each horseman uh, obeys the command and rides forth. Well, it'd be very inappropriate for a, an angel, a mere creature, to be commanding the Lord of the universe. Remember in chapter 5, he's been given all authority in this whole universe for a mere creature to command Jesus, come, right? And then Jesus obeys and he comes out of that. No, a creature does not command his king and a creature does not command his general to ride forth. That would contradict the meaning of the other symbols. And so the Jesus interpretation introduces huge tension into the text. The next argument is that the four horses parallel the first four judgments in Matthew chapter 24, and there are many commentaries that will chart these out for you, including most preterist commentaries. And what is the first judgment in Matthew 24 that parallels the first rider in this chapter? It's a messianic state, that goes forth creating wars and rumors of wars. It's militaristic. It's not the gospel. It has to do with bad statism. But these interpreters will object, then why have a white horse instead of another color? And there could be two possible answers. And the first is uh, could be historical, that Tiberius inherited his father's white horse. Okay, Suetonius shows that he wrote on it. I mean, that was, a, that was a public statement that he's going to be the next emperor. But Beale gives a spiritual reason for the color white. He points out that Satan's kingdom is a counterfeit of Christ's kingdom on every level, including the peace symbolized by white. Starting with Augustus, the emperors chose white to symbolize the peace they would bring to the empire by means of their savior, Caesar. And Tiberius had the word pax, P-A-X, on many of his coins. It means peace. It's talking about this Roman peace. And he has the word savior uh, written on many of those coins, as did uh, um, Augustus. Uh, Supposedly, Tiberius brought in peace through his conquests, but whereas he symbolized a statist view of grace and peace, Jesus symbolizes a redemptive view of grace and peace, the kingdom emerging from the Lamb, from grace. You see, those seven horns of the Lamb in chapter 5 represent the fullness of Christ's reign flowing from grace, every part of it. So Beale says that the white horse of chapter 6 simply shows the counterfeit messianism in contrast to the real Messiah in chapter 19. Next argument, Beale points out that the first four seals are grouped together just like the first four trumpets are. So you've got a quartet followed by three, and then you've got another quartet followed uh, by three. Well, that argues that everything in that quartet is even more tightly linked together than the seven as a whole. The Jesus interpretation gives a jarring difference. It spoils the quartet. It really doesn't make any sense out of having a quartet. And then Mounts gives one more argument. He says, A final and fatal objection is the repeated use of there was given, which normally in Revelation refers to the divine permission granted to evil powers to carry out their nefarious work. And this is especially 
a strong argument because the immediate context uses exactly the same word and exactly the same tense to describe the, 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 the clearly demonic second, third, and fourth writers. Okay? It, it, it's um, the Greek word edothe. It was given to each of the writers the power to do something. So the first horse is paralleled with the next three horses as being given some kind of sphere of authority. That simply does not fit Christ. Okay, Jesus is the one giving authority to all of these riders, and he gives them authority as he opens the seal. So for all of those reasons, I think the evidence, as much as I respect Greg Bonson and some of these other riders, I think is strongly against them. It is clearly not Jesus who is riding this first um, uh, horse. It is a demonic emperor. Now, last week we saw that an evil spirit was behind the four emperors, and we narrowed the emperors down to Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero, Nero being the very end of the Julio-Claudian line. So, you know, we do have to get into all of this kind of stuff. Otherwise, the application is not going to be credible. But let's dive into uh, the application of each um, uh, verse now. Verse 1 begins, And I saw the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. Now, according to the context of chapter 5, this occurred after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, uh, where he inherited all things. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to him. So he had the authority to orchestrate all of history from here on in as the God-man, just like he had authority to orchestrate all of history as the pre-incarnate Son of God before. So here, here's the point. The fact that scary demons and emperors emerge from seals that Jesus himself is opening is comforting. They could not be on the scene without Jesus' permission, without his purpose, unless they served his kingdom growth. They are pawns in his hand. That's comforting. It's very encouraging. He is indeed working all things together for our good and for his glory, even notorious rulers like these four. But the cherubim angels are often intimately involved in his providences, and that is certainly the case here. Verse 1 goes on to say, And I heard one of the four living beings saying, like a voice of thunder, Come. Now this angel is just a creature. What authority does he have to tell demons that they have to come. How can he command them to do things like this? Well, it's the authority of Christ. It is only after Christ gives the signal by opening the seal that this angel is authorized to command the demon to come forth. And in the same way, we do not have authority over demons in ourselves. Even the most powerful angel, Michael the archangel, did not have authority to command Satan in his own strength. Jude 9 says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. That's our authority. It's Jesus. And that's our only authority against demons. When we get to Revelation 12, we're going to be seeing that the saints overcame Satan by what? By the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, we're going to see that the word of their testimony is taking the scriptures, making them our own, and speaking those scriptures by faith. 
And what is the scroll that we've just finished looking at? It's the Old Testament canon, right? It is the word of the Lamb that authorizes angels and that authorizes us to war against Satan. It is our strongest spiritual weapon. But a second application is that demons are not omnipotent. Now, certainly, under the authority of Jesus, these demons are being bossed around by the good angels. They're being commanded to do things. James tells us that even if Satan himself were to come into your life and start messing around with you, you have authority to resist him, and if you resist him, he will flee. That is, if you're using spiritual tools that he has given to you, the scriptures being the paramount uh, tool. Listen to what he told the 70 disciples. He had sent them out, performing miracles, casting out demons, and uh, Luke ten seventeen describes what happened. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, don't ever forget the authority we have is an authority in Jesus Christ, and it's him alone, and yet they're amazed, they're astonished at the incredible authority and power that they have to command demons around, just like this angel commanded that one demon around. And here's Christ's response, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Hallelujah! Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Heaven is really far more glorious when you think about it, But don't dismiss the incredible power that we have in Christ Jesus. The last verses of the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark 16, 15 through 18, says that any believer has this power. If you've once put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have authority over all the power of the enemy, over all demonic powers. It's incredible. In any case, this angel must have been an amazing angel because it says he had a voice that sounded like thunder. And his command to the demonic behind Tiberius was calm, and the demon instantly obeyed. We aren't told what time in Tiberius' life that this angel began to trouble him, but based on context, I'm assuming it was 30 A.D. If it was 30 A.D., well, that's significant. We're going to be seeing... Uh, 30 A.D. is a significant turning point. Why is it that Tiberius started off as a rather good emperor and then he switched to becoming an unbelievably evil emperor? Well, I think this passage tells us why. There's this demon that's starting to work uh, in his life. And I think it helps uh, us to understand how it is that decent Politicians who are unbelievers can go into Washington, D.C., and in a remarkably short period of time, they are supporting absolutely ghastly bills, and they are doing ghastly things. There, there, is a, there are spiritual principalities and powers that we need to take account of. They are being influenced by demons. Well, verse 2 says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. Now, this is an angelic horse on one level. And when I say angelic, I don't mean good angels. I'm talking about the bad angels, the fallen angels. But both sides, the good angels are about a third of all of the angels. I mean, uh, two-thirds of all the angels. The bad angels are one-third that fell with Satan. 
But 2 Kings 6, verse 17 shows that there are spiritual creatures that are like horses pulling chariots, and obviously the horse is a spiritual creature subservient to this demonic ruler. Now, you'll remember from last week that the symbols of demons can be symbols of the humans that they control. For example, later in the book, we're going to be seeing that Nero becomes the beast. His early reign was actually pretty, pretty decent. It wasn't that bad. It was, uh, it, it was demonically controlled, and you can show evidences of that. But boy, there was a switch at some point where he becomes the beast. Why does he become the beast? Well, Revelation later tells us it's because there's a demon called the beast who comes up out of the bottomless pit and given, is given permission to, uh, to uh, possess uh, Nero. So is the beast a man or is the beast a demon? Well, it's very obvious later on it's both. And the same is true uh, here. Um, uh, this uh, person riding the horse is both the demon behind Tiberius as well as Tiberius the man. And previously we saw that Scripture frequently does this. It will address the, the demon controlling a king, for example, or it will address... Uh, the man, uh, it did this with the king of Tyre, did this with the king of Babylon. It starts addressing the king, then it's addressing the, the demon as if they're one and the same uh, bad problem. So the question is, is this referring to Tiberius's white horse or the demonic rider's white horse? I, I've never seen any commentary dealing with questions like that, but I don't see why it couldn't be both. Yeah. It's obviously a reference to some demonic creature, but you see, demons influence people to try to be like them and to do things like them, and it could be, could very well be that this demon had a white horse and he's somehow making Tiberius want to ride a white horse. I don't know. In any case, Suetonius speaks of Tiberius riding the white horse of his adoptive father Augustus and doing so very publicly. I'm not sure you have to pick. I think it could be both and. But in one sense, it really doesn't matter whether there was a historical white horse. What matters is what the demonic white horse symbolized. Okay, remember that the whole book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, the whole book of Revelation is filled with symbols that represent real events in history and in the spiritual realm. And what would they symbolize? Well, there are differences of opinion among commentaries. Uh, some point to the fact that white garments on a believer represent righteousness. So this horse represents righteousness. Others emphasize that white has frequently been used as a symbol of peace. Others show that the book has uh, frequently used uh, the word white to represent victory. And again, I think it's all of them put together. When the real Messiah is rejected, the state automatically becomes a de facto Messiah, okay? And this messianic state dishes out as much goodness, prosperity, peace, and other counterfeit graces that it can muster. And so Beale says, here white may refer to the forces of evil as they try to appear righteous and thus deceive by imitating Christ. Uh, D.T. Niles said, when men wage war, they always pretend to be fighting for righteousness. And I think it's good to recognize this principle in modern messianic politics.
politics. The rhetoric that goes into justifying a welfare state is pretended righteousness. It's the white horse of pretended righteousness. The state trumpets itself as doing a righteous thing when it hands out food stamps and pays for education and pays for health and, and things like that. The rhetoric used to justify the war on poverty, war on drugs, war on just about anything else is a pretended white horse of righteousness, while the whole time they're robbing citizens of liberties. You see, if Christians could just once get through their heads that this rhetoric of the white horse is, is a bad imitation of Christ and that it's in the process taking away our liberties, it's hugely expanding uh, the, 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 the government, and in the process it's making it easier and easier for demons to control all of the citizens of a nation, they would put away bad politics. But what do Christians do? No, they're parading Tiberius through the streets, and they're stumping for tri Tiberius, and they're thinking, this is great, you ought to vote for Tiberius. Why? Because he's got good causes. What they really need to be asking is, are the bad methods that this Tiberius is using to promote a good cause, making the whole cause evil? I think it is. You've got to consider both the methods as well as the, the goals uh, from a righteous uh, perspective. Now, others emphasize that this white is a counterfeit peace, and Rome did have a counterfeit peace. The Pax Romana, or the peace produced by Rome, is on the coins and on many of the pieces of propaganda from Rome during this period. Their armies brutally suppressed all opposition, all resistance, but they did so, what? In the name of peace, in the name of justice for all. They were imposing their idea of peace upon the whole world, just like America is. And the Roman citizens thought this was being generous just like American citizens do. Tiberius was helping Rome to be the policeman of the world. It needs a policeman. There's so many problems out there. Who's going to solve it if we don't solve it, right? And so uh, they were thinking it's a good thing, and the Bible would say, no, it's not a good thing. And it's really strange how politics has not changed a whole lot in the last 2,000 uh, years. Our wars and imperialism all over the world is simply a new form of what Caesar Tiberius had been engaging in, peace imposed by an all-powerful state. And it stinks in the sight of God. It does not exalt Jesus as Lord over our nation. Now, others point out that white is connected with conquest and victory. Now, certainly, the horse is a sign of conquest and victory, and all four horses were engaged in conquest and victory. But concerning the, the symbol of white, John D. Berry says, Thus far in Revelation, white has suggested victory. And people say, well, is that really appropriate to be attributing victory to, to the enemy? Only Christ is the one who has victory. And say, no, it is appropriate to use that. In fact, the book of Daniel prophesied very specifically that in the last days of the old covenant that Satan and the fourth beast would prevail. There is that word for victory. Would prevail against the saints and wear them out. So it appeared as if Satan was winning. But the saints did not live by appearances. They walked by faith, and they continued to fight. They continued to press the gospel. And by the end of this book, it shows that Jesus gains all of planet Earth. Praise God. Amen. 
Okay? Now, let me make an application here to those who want to have all sides coexist in peace. Okay? Pluralism does not work because Satan's always going to have his children, the humanists, to take away our liberties. Christians constantly promote religious pluralism as if it's the only hope for liberty. It is the opposite. You just look at Rome, who was, by the way, the first nation to originate religious pluralism, and you will see that it always leads to persecution of Christians, always. Statism and pluralism always end up putting Christians under the feet of humanism. Look at the language of the GLBTQ bills that are being introduced in Nebraska legislature and other states, and you'll see that they are designed, just read the language on the surface, they are designed to take away your religious freedom, your freedom of speech, your freedom to peaceably assemble like we are doing here this morning. They want to force us to celebrate their agenda, and we want them to celebrate Jesus Christ. The only difference is they want to use the state to force belief. We want to use grace to win people to belief, right? We believe in the free market of ideas, but we are competing. Make no mistake about it. We are competing, right? And both sides of our cultural battles are aiming for total victory and dominion. Ours is a victory and dominion that flows from redemption from the seven horns of the Lamb. Theirs is a victory and dominion that flows from an all-powerful state. Both are in an all-out war to capture planet Earth, and both spiritual armies have what? They have humans as their agents. So don't forget, we are in a spiritual battle. It is especially a spiritual battle, but it affects all of life, all of politics. Christians cede way too much territory to the demonic when we are silent about the Bible and about Christ's kingdom, when we begin using the same demonic political strategies that the demonic politicians use. We need to depend on grace and proudly wear the name of Christ in the public arena and proudly glorify God in the public arena and proudly promote God's law in the public arena. Those are our tools. So one side or the other is going to win this battle. And so this is the counterfeit to Christ's white horse. Both Augustus and Tiberius tried to portray themselves as saviors of the nation, healers of the nation, sustainers of peace, the providers for the nation. I've got pictures of numerous coins that clearly show their messianic pretensions. Satan loves to take the eyes of people off of Christ and to put them on the saint. And he's been pretty successful in our generation, even with Christians. I don't know how many of my Christian friends always look to the state. In their case, it's the Republican Party to be the savior. And they're willing to cede more and more and more power to their savior to deliver them. And it is a counterfeit to Christ and his kingdom. Now, this rider is also associated with a bow. This is one of the reasons why some of the uh, commentators have said that this was Caesar Augustus because uh, there is a coin of Caesar Augustus carrying a, a bow. And of course, Julius Caesar was a Cretan, and the Cretans were a race of bowmen, so there's others who say, hey, it's got to be uh, Julius Caesar. But if you start with Julius or Augustus, it messes up the identification of the next three horsemen, and it messes up the context of 30 AD. See, the point of these four horsemen is to show the end of the Julio 
Claudian line that began with Julius Caesar, was being carried on by Tiberius, ended with Nero. They're all militaristic. They're all welfare-minded, centralist, messianic. They're humanistic leaders, and one by one, Jesus uses them and then disposes of them. They actually end up contributing to the advancement of Christ's kingdom. We're going to be seeing that in the future weeks. But what does the bow symbolize? It symbolizes conquest from afar. So it's another military symbol, but it's conquest from afar. It is imperialism. And Tiberius was the one who expanded the Roman Empire the most, first as a general under Augustus and then on his own. And imperialism has been the constant temptation of powerful states. I think this, this explains the almost irrational quest for more and more centralization, more and more power in the state is because there's demons that are influencing behind them. And these demons want to claim everything that Christ claims. So are you beginning to catch the picture of what goes on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm in capital states? And in, in Washington, D.C., there are demons that are moving these people to do these irrational things because they want control. Now, this writer was also associated with a Stephanus crown, which was a laurel crown. And laurel crowns, hey, they were associated with Julius and Augustus and Tiberius and other emperors. But Tiberius especially would have been remembered as the emperor of the Stephanus crown par excellence for four reasons. Let me give those to you. They're not in your outlines. But first of all, he was Rome's greatest general. And the Stephanus crown is associated with the glorious honor given to a victorious general. Second, the text here says that a crown was given to him, not taken, it was given to him. Unlike other emperors who took this honor to themselves, Caesar Augustus gave, in fact, I think I've got a cup. Did I put that into your outlines? Yes, a cup that shows him being crowned. Caesar Augustus uh, gave this Stephanus crown to Tiberius, and um, it was uh, a great honor uh, to him. Third, Tiberius always wore this crown, and he kept making new crowns because they would start crumbling and drying up, and so he'd make new ones. He always wore it because he superstitiously thought it would protect him from lightning and thunder. And then fourth, every coin of Tiberius has him wearing a loyal, uh, laurel crown. If you were to ask which king was the emperor associated in everyone's mind of a Stephanus crown, hands down, it would be Tiberius. He's the emperor of the crown. Now, when John uses the term was given to describe that crown, he is deliberately using the same form of the same verb used elsewhere in the book to indicate God has given somebody something, that God is sovereign. Each writer is under God's sovereign thumb, and other evil forces, such as those demons in chapter 9, can only do what God allows them to do. Now, Tiberius may have thought, hey, it's Augustus that gave me this crown. Really? When we're looking at it, we say, yeah, it came through Augustus's hands, but it's God who gave him that crown. God is sovereign over even the victories achieved by the humanists. As Beale says, that this first destructive rider is ultimately under the hand of God is apparent from the phrase, edothe auto, it was given to him, which is an authorization clause with God as the subject, as is clear from other uses of the passive of didomi or give elsewhere in the book. And he gives a whole bunch of, of scriptures. 
The clause is used in commissioning both good and evil intermediary agents and is best understood in the specific sense of a divine authorization to perform a role rather than the more general idea of permit or allow. Is it sometimes frustrating to get a Tiberius, a Caligula, a Bush, a Clinton, <laughs> a Claudius onto the throne of politics? Yes, yeah, it is incredibly frustrating. We, we just have been living through one frustration after another, but I think we need to remind ourselves that even though we are commanded to oppose their evil designs and seek to be salt and light in our society, we can still have an absolute confidence that they are tools in God's hand. They cannot go one step further than what God allows, and God was allowing Rome at that time to gain these powers to discipline, to spank the church, so to speak. The church was fast becoming apostate in the first century, and God used it to purify the church and turn it into a dynamo that spread the gospel in the next few centuries uh, and took over so many countries. Now, the last thing that is said to be true of this horseman is that his goal was total conquest. Verse 2 goes on to say, and he went out conquering, that is, in order to conquer. Why the awkward grammar? Well, the in order to is a purpose clause that explains the intentions of Tiberius, not necessarily what he would actually achieve. On one level, he was the conqueror, that is, that was his hope. His goal was to conquer everything. Did he achieve it? No. <laughs> the Germans were so rebellious, so uncooperative. They just were a constant thorn in his flesh. And it wasn't just them. The Parthians were a thorn in his flesh. He could not subdue them. In fact, um, one of the Parthian generals uh, by the name of uh, Vologeses in 62 AD gave a resounding defeat to Vespasian uh, under the reign of Nero. See, the point is that though Rome would, would, have, would have had a worldwide empire, if it could have had it, there are always frustrations to keep the puny gods and generals in check. I love the line in the Avengers movie after Loki says, I am a god, you dull creature, and I will not be bullied by you. And Hulk grabs Loki, and he's smashing him back and forth onto the ground like a rag doll. And the guy is just lying there like this, and he walks off and says, puny god. <laughs> I love that line, puny god. Well, that's what the humanists of our day really are. Yes, they can cause trouble like Loki did. Yes, they can cause death like Loki did. But though they think they have kicked God out of the schools, out of the courts, out of every area of public life, can they really kick God out of anything? No. No, they are no match for the Lord Jesus Christ. Though they are arrogating more and more power to themselves day by day, God can undo them overnight if he chooses to do so. But you see, apart from national repentance, which is what Christ is after, America will not escape the judgments that God has brought upon every nation that defies him. Could, God could smash America just like the Hulk smashed Loki. And actually, in one sense, he's already doing so. Allowing nations to suffer under tyrants such as Tiberius is a judgment from God's hand, according to Romans chapter 1, he's giving the nation up 
unto a depraved mind. He's giving the nation up unto this and that uh, kind of judgment. And if they don't repent under Tiberius, God can bring along worse tyranny like Caligula. And if they still don't repent, he can bring the plagues of the third seal. And if they still don't repent, wow, they're going to be suffering under Nero. And Nero was absolutely horrible, absolutely horrible. So if these horsemen teach us nothing else, they should teach us that our nation is already under judgment. God may lessen the pain under a Claudius for a while, but apart from national repentance, it's going to be temporary. We're going to still be heading toward the horrors of Nero. We live in serious times, and the balance that God wants us to have is to, first of all, not fear, because our current set of tyrants are under God's hand. They couldn't emerge if Jesus didn't open a seal and if an angel didn't command demons to do their stuff. Never forget, God is sovereign, never fear. But secondly, do something about it. Look at our nation with spiritual eyes and recognize that if our nation continues to reject the Prince of Peace, the rider on the white horse in chapter 19, without experiencing... The we're going to start experiencing the tyranny of our own Pax Romana. It is inescapable that cultures must have a Messiah. You, you point to one culture that does not have a Messiah, and uh, you know, I'll give you kudos, but I don't think there is one. It is inescapable that cultures must have a Messiah. It will either be the true one or it will be a counterfeit one. May God wake up the church to the reality of judgment and make her once again embrace the old paths that led to the establishment of a Christian civilization out of pagan Rome, out of the very Rome that we're talking about. He made a Christian civilization, and Christian civilization is once again possible if the church will heed the message of Revelation. In fact, I'm really looking forward to Providential History Festival. That's going to be the theme. The March of Christendom, okay, and how it can once again be reestablished. So be in prayer for that as we have uh, two speakers, um, uh, Joel McDermott and uh, Jeff Bodkin, who are going to be coming and speaking on that theme. But let's pray. Oh, let me say amen. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this, your word. We thank you that uh, it does give us... uh, a realism about the troubles that we are experiencing, that these are not things that can just be fixed with an election. Uh, They must be fixed by the power of your grace. And yet we thank you for the hope and the comfort that uh, passages like this give, that none of these demons uh, or humans uh, can uh, come out of the seals if Jesus does not allow them to come forth. That You have made Jesus the sovereign over all of earth. And Psalm 1 admonishes the kings of the earth to wise up, uh, to kiss the Son, lest you be angry and they perish in the way. We pray, Father, that by your grace you would help America to wise up, to kiss the Son, so that we could prosper rather than perishing in the way. Uh, We love your word, we love your kingdom, we love your grace, we love everything about you, and we want to see you glorified and to see you advanced in this nation. We pray that you would help us to be a part of that process, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.